had lots of fun scripting the opens to my show for years now. It started when guest star Priya Parker, author of The Art of Gathering, joined me on this podcast a few summers ago and reminded us to never start a funeral with logistics, by which she meant that the moment at the start of a gathering or podcast and the moments at the end, those are the real moments that matter. And so put extra effort into them. And don't tell the people gathered at a memorial service at its very start, don't lead off with someone left their lights on and level two with a parking garage and their license plate is blah, blah, blah. Don't do that. You lose such a key opportunity. And so from that following week's podcast onward, for years now, I have made a point of pre-scripting what I say to you up front each week. It's what I'm doing right now. Well, what's ahead this week? I don't know that this week's topic needs any further introduction than just its name, Bitcoin, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. You know, thinking back to that Priya Parker interview, I'm reminded one week after we just brought you Blast from the Past, that that was a wonderful blast from the past. And in fact, I highly recommend Googling Rule Breaker Investing Art of Gathering and going back and listening to that blast from the past if you hadn't previously encountered it. Anyway, that was then and this is now. I am delighted this week to be joined by two of my favorite people helping me and you think about the future and maybe how it informs the present that we are all living through. And if we're talking about the present of Bitcoin and the many things tied to it today, the sky-high price that it has achieved in the market's mind in recent weeks and months, and all of the implications of that, I'm delighted to be joined this week by my longtime friend, Jim Surwicki, and my longtime co-worker, Aaron Bush. They are my two guest stars to discuss Bitcoin with you this week. Jim is the author of the book, The Wisdom of Crowds. He writes a business column for Marker. He blogs at surwicki.medium.com. Now, you may not know how to spell Surwicki. I'm going to do it for you right now because I think Jim's worth reading. His last name is spelled S-U-R-O. That's the easy part, W-I-E-C-K-I. So S-U-R-O-W-I-E-C-K-I.medium.com where he blogs. He wrote for many years the financial page for The New Yorker and in an earlier life, he was a Motley Fool employee helping us figure out the internet in early days. So longtime friend, Jim Serwicki, joining my friend, Aaron Bush. Aaron is at Aaron Bush 100 on Twitter. He is investor at large at The Motley Fool, where he's been an analyst and friend for years now. He's previously been on this podcast numerous times, winning the market cap game show or helping us understand, yeah, Bitcoin. He's also founder of his own research effort in the world of video games, and that's masterthemeta.com. So I wanted to get these introductions out of the way so we could start our conversation. I also want you to know, having already done this conversation, I'm taping this portion after it, that the sound quality at points is not up to snuff for this podcast for very understandable reason. We were not operating with our normal technology in place. Aaron himself in Texas. Anybody heard about the weather in Texas this week? His, his electricity came on literally five minutes before we started recording, which made it awfully helpful to do a podcast together. And Jim also working from his own home office. So while some of the sound quality and what you're gonna to experience together is maybe below the standard, I think the thought quality is well above the standard this week for Rule Breaker Investing. I wanna thank my guests for bringing their full selves 
to share with you today as we discuss Bitcoin. All right, Aaron, let's begin with you and the proverbial alien visiting from another planet question. So Aaron, I'm an alien from another planet. Take me to your leader. But if you can't, perhaps you can answer me this. What are these cryptocurrencies I've been hearing about from you humans? And what is Bitcoin? Well, first of all, if we have aliens visiting, we probably have bigger problems on our hands. But, you know, <laughs> if, if I were inclined to start talking about crypto, I mean, I guess I would start by saying it's magic Internet money. That's probably like the simplest way to put it. But more seriously, um, you know, cryptocurrency is digital currency or, you know, just Internet money in which transactions are verified and records are maintained in a decentralized way using cryptography instead of having some centralized authority, typically a government, um, you know, in control of that system. And as we as a society become more digitally immersed, uh, the ways that we make and store and use money become increasingly digital as well. And so cryptocurrency, which, you know, you know, on the internet is essentially programmable money. It's an evolution of money for our increasingly digital world. It can be designed and used in multiple kinds of ways. One, one kind of which is Bitcoin, which is, you know, the first and largest cryptocurrency still. Um, in its case, you know, the currency part of cryptocurrency might sort of be a misnomer. Maybe we can talk a bit about that later. Okay. Um, and maybe it's best compared to, you know, something like digital gold with with other long term optionality. But of course, there are other types of cryptocurrency. Not everything works exactly like Bitcoin um, and other cryptocurrencies might serve other purposes or act as foundational platforms that others can build apps and services on top of. I don't think we need to get too into the weeds on that right now, but generally that's how I think about what cryptocurrency is. Well, again, thank you as an alien to your planet. I want you to know, first of all, I come in peace. Please don't make the <laughs> assumption that I'm coming after you or anything, but I did read some of your, your species history and I understand that originally money was a form of receipt. It was basically grain stored in granaries and sumer. Uh, and then somebody thought, well, rather than just be a store of value, what if we started making it tradable? And so metals came in. And that's my understanding of your species and what you've been doing ever since. And so now it sounds like now technology has advanced to the point where it's invisible and yet it still can function the same way. But I remain a little confused. And I'm going to turn to my friend Jim Serwicky in a second. I remain a little confused as to whether these cryptocurrencies, this Bitcoin is supposed to be a currency that I'm spending or instead like grain in Sumer thousands of years ago, just a form of storage or receipt. And indeed, Jim Sirwicki, longtime friend and author of the venerated book, The Wisdom of Crowds, which, by the way, my nephew in college tells me is his assigned reading this turn. So <laughs> you are indeed, you've already created a modern classic. Jim, I say you wrote an article for Marker last month. I really enjoyed your article and your premise. By the way, I'm back to me now. I'm no longer an alien. Your premise was that measured as a currency, Bitcoin, you say, has failed. You went strong to the hoop with that word. If currency, Jim, by definition, is a medium of exchange, it seems it's, it isn't used that way in any measurable manner in commercial transactions or consumer life today. It's been about a month since you wrote that article. Bitcoin has been volatile over that last month. Jim, have your own thoughts been volatile or do you still believe what you wrote one month ago? Oh, no, I still I still believe what I wrote a month ago. I, I think it is. I, I, I don't know. Is it up to 50,000 today? I think uh the piece I wrote came out right after it had gone to 
39, then falling back to 30 or something. And, uh, and, and I think it's up almost, it, almost hundred percent since then. Maybe that's just like, maybe, maybe more like 65% since then. Um, but no, it, it, my opinion has not changed. If anything, the incredible volatility that we have seen, obviously it's been good volatility in the sense of for, for Bitcoin holders in the sense that it's, it's gone up, um, just kind of confirms the, the basic premise of the article. Um, and it's something I've, I've actually, I've been writing about Bitcoin. <laughs> it kind of cracks me up. I've, written about Bitcoin since 2011. And wow. I always think to myself, I wrote the first piece back, uh, it was for a piece for technology review. I think it was 2011. And I always say to myself, you know, if I just put a thousand dollars in Bitcoin then, I mean, literally, if you think about it, I mean, it's incredible how different my life would be. Um, but I didn't because even then I thought it was in a bubble and I, I don't even know what it was at at that time. But the bubble question is different. The, this piece that I wrote was really about the fact that um, if you go back to the origins of Bitcoin, to, to the original white paper that was published, the original design of it, and maybe more importantly, to the way people talked about it, it was really talked about as something that people hoped would become a currency. It would become a replacement for fiat money, um, that is to say government-issued money, and that people would use it to trade. They would use it to buy and sell goods and services. And that was one of the big appeals of it from a kind of conceptual point of view. And, and you know, it had a kind of cyberpunk element to it. I mean, that in, not in a bad way, but in a, in a kind of historical sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what has happened over time is that uh, it's become very clear that that's not really what Bitcoin is going to be used for. That it is, I think, mainly because of the way it was designed from the start, but also because of the way its value has risen and fallen and risen and fallen. Um, it's just way too volatile uh, to, for people to use it to buy and sell goods and services, um, both on the upside and on the downside. I mean, you don't want to buy something with Bitcoin today if it's going to be worth 65% more, you know, three weeks from now. But alternatively, you don't want to sell something for Bitcoin if it's going to be worth 20% less tomorrow, maybe. So that's one of the reasons. Um, and then I think there's also a reason we can get into if we want about the limited supply of Bitcoin, which was one of the great appeals of it, and I think still is. Um, but that actually also made it very hard to work well as a currency. So I think the combination of those things has turned it from a potential currency into, and I think Aaron's phrase is right, it's essentially become a form of digital gold. I think that's that's pretty much the way people see it. Um, there, When I wrote that piece, I got a huge amount of pushback, mainly because I think people thought I was saying Bitcoin itself had failed. Um, all those headline writers. Yes, definitely. <laughs> but but there was also a lot of push. There was pushback from people who were like, no, it's still going to be used as a currency. And I, I don't know. I just don't see it. I don't see it. And Jim, I'm curious, since you're one of the great intellectual live wires I've ever come across, and I always enjoy hearing how your thought has progressed. What would you say is the, the greatest similarity uh, 10 years later to what you were thinking in 2011 about Bitcoin? And what would you say is the greatest change in your thinking? The, 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 I think back then I still was intrigued by the possibility of, of, of it becoming a true currency. So I was skeptical that that, that was going to be easy. And in fact, the argument I made in that piece was, was paradoxically something I still believe, which is that the only way for Bitcoin to really become a currency was for it to, to essentially drop in value. There are complicated arguments about whether that's true or not, but that the problem was as long as Bitcoin kept 
escalating in value, it was just going to be very hard for it to become a currency. So I think that was, I still thought that was possible. I don't think that's, that's possible or likely at least uh, anymore. Um, in terms of the similarities, the basic similarity is that the design of Bitcoin, so there are a limited number of Bitcoins in 20, what is it, 2140, I can never remember. It's going to reach its maximum number and no more Bitcoins will ever be issued. And I think that creates an incredible incentive for people to hoard it rather than to spend it. And so there are ways around that. People have tried to find ways around it. I think the core reality of Bitcoin is that. And so um, that's why I think it was always in some ways headed to where it is ended up. All right, let's do a quick numerical accounting. Aaron, I'm going to turn back to you now. History will show that the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast last invited you on to talk about this subject on December 6th. 2017. Now that very week, Bitcoin would jump from $13,000 to $19,000 that week. One year later, it was at $3,200. Now it wouldn't get back to $19,000 again until, wait for it, literally December 6th, 2020. That was exactly three years after I last had you on this podcast to talk about crypto. And of course, since then, it has now risen in just the last few months from around $19,000 to around $50,000, which is where it's priced today as we record the afternoon of February 16th, 2021. So Aaron, first of all, this means I have a pension for having you on at times of extreme appreciation and uh, pun intended. And, and where things are a year later can sometimes be very different. And yet that drop from even from 2017 to 18 of 19,000 back down to 3,000 seems possibly irrelevant now on the one hand now with Bitcoin at 50,000, but it was even a great buy at 19,000 if we think about it three years later, even at its peak, it's almost a three bagger just over three years later. Aaron, I believe when we caught up on this a few years ago, you owned some Bitcoin. I still do. I, I don't think I have any. I've just been holding. I wish I bought more, right? Um, <laughs> at, at certain points, but I've, I've still been holding. And it really is amazing to look back. You know, I think on, on you know, on one hand, it, it was pretty bubbly at the time. Like I, I do remember, um, you know, going to restaurants and listening to people, <laughs> overhearing conversations, they would talk about crypto. You know, even I sometimes would be in those restaurants talking about crypto, you know, it was part of my job and I would notice people listening in. So the, the tone of, you know, just individual investors um, was, was very, you know, very much driven by FOMO, fear of missing out at the time. Um, and I think it showed and it wasn't, the demand wasn't sustainable. But I think, you know, over time, we have seen that, you know, there actually is something to this Bitcoin thing. And it, it is a situation where some people would say that, you know, Bitcoin doesn't have any intrinsic value. But on the other hand, the its value is believed into existence over time and any type of value, or I would even say any type of stability is an emergent property. And I think if you even look beyond just the three years ago that we talked about Bitcoin, you can almost see these, these cycles occur almost in a fractal-like way. And when you, when you zoom in, you almost see the same chart that you do when you zoom out. Um, and these ups and downs have been recurring. So, so, you know, looking forward, it wouldn't surprise me again, you know, if we go through other, other dips, I don't know if we're there yet. Um, and I don't think that uh, I do think that the volatility will continue perhaps, um, you know, for decades from now, I, it's kind of hard to say. Um, but I think what we have seen since then is 
more people believing that value into existence, not just individual investors, but also institutions now increasingly companies. So I do think the narrative has changed a little bit from now until then. Plus, just as cryptocurrency, that whole ecosystem has started to mature a little bit more. But it really is fascinating to look back and see how things have changed so quickly. Well, I, I want to talk some about, about storing value, and I want to do it in the context of a stock, a stock that I picked back in 2014, re-recommended in 2016, which had been a pretty perennial underperformer, I'm sorry to say. The ticker symbol MSTR, the company is MicroStrategy. It is in the Motley Fool Rule Breakers service. We had an unexceptional cost basis looked at from any eyes that were not in the last few months, of about $138 a share in 2014. It had gone up to 183 in 2016. So I kind of added to our winners, but then it went sideways. This business intelligence software company stock went sideways for years. Gentlemen, I know you're following the story, but many others aren't MicroStrategy, not exactly a household name. And those two stock picks, well, the stock had kind of settled around 140 by last fall, i.e., I was down while the stock market had gone up over those five or six years. And now the stock has gone from about 140 to, yep, I'm seeing it at 988 here as we talk on Tuesday afternoon. This company has gone ballistic. It is now a great winning stock pick for Motley Fool Rule Breaker members showing patience. Now, why did this happen? Well, this business intelligence software company has a maverick Founder, CEO, Michael Saylor here in the greater DC area, kind of a well-known and an increasingly well-known guy. And he began to convert the balance sheet of his business intelligence software company, the cash into Bitcoin starting kind of last summer. I saw him tweeting out some and just talking about the importance of crypto. And oh my gosh, if it isn't also the case, Jim Sirwicky, that I think the company has announced a secondary offering uh, this week, I think even today to issue more shares of MicroStrategy stock intended to be traded into Bitcoin itself. Oh, is what it, is happening with MicroStrategy? I, well, you know, the funny thing I, I was thinking about as you were talking is I realized that I actually have no idea what MicroStrategy's business has actually done over the last four years. Uh, I mean, I remember Michael Saylor, you know, Michael Saylor was a kind of high profile figure at the tail end of the internet bubble. He was sort of, a, as you said, kind of a maverick, um, and there was a lot of buzz around him. And then MicroStrategy went down to, I can't imagine how low the stock got. Um, but, you know, he kept the company in business. And so I have no idea what the actual business has done. What I know is what you said, that they invested in Bitcoin. They've made, and I mean, I think uh, as of today, they had made something like $2.5 billion um, on their investment in, in Bitcoin. Uh, so that's $25 billion. Yeah, well, and when you consider that the company's market cap, as we speak, is just shy of $10 billion, and yeah. you consider that it's up six times in a few months, you can see that they've made more money on their Bitcoin investment than the market cap of the company four months ago. Exactly. So, so, so that's been fascinating. And I think that there's no question that there has been uh, you know, I mean, obviously, to some degree, there's a fundamental response there. I mean, a, 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 they're responding to fundamentals if you assume that investing in Bitcoin can count as real money because he hasn't converted it back into dollars, but let's assume that it is. So there has been a response to, to the fundamentals, but it's also true that Bitcoin has become a little bit of a magic word for investors so or speculators, depending on your perspective. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but you know there were those studies that were done 
of um, the 19 of the late 1990s that showed that companies that just added .com to their name, even if they didn't really have much to do with it, got a bump uh, automatically pretty much from, from investors, uh, at least temporarily. And there's some of that. There's some sense of, you know, if you talk about Bitcoin um, and, you know, it's some people have said the same thing is true of Tesla, that if a company just decided it was going to invest its corporate shares in Tesla, it would immediately get a, a, a steep, a steep rise. So there's some of that. What's fascinating is, is what he's done today is to say, we're going to raise another 600 million and put more of it in, you know, more of it. I mean, it's 50,000 now they can obviously invest it when they want, but, you know, I think that suggests that he's, that he's serious about this on some level, but it is a pretty extraordinary moment. I mean, there's nothing I can really think of that's similar to it in terms of, uh, companies, you know, basically using their their corporate cash in this in this way. I mean, it's a mm. fascinating experiment. And I want to make it clear to everybody listening that I'm I'm pretty neutral and just wanting to learn and to explore. And that's really the I think that's the tenor of our conversation. You know, from my standpoint, Aaron, this is a stock pick I made for rule breakers. It's a multiple recommendation for rule breaker members. We have been beneficiaries of this. Aaron Bush, you own the Bitcoin yourself. You are a beneficiary of this. Aaron, should I recommend selling MicroStrategy sometime the next month or so and cash in on our eight bagger? Or or is this the start of something amazing? I mean, I think the way I would think about it is should you sell MicroStrategy to buy Bitcoin? That's the question <laughs> I, I would be asking. I mean, as for you know, whether in a vacuum, whether to buy or sell MicroStrategy, um, I mean, I'm honestly kind of torn on this too, because you know, on on one level, like it is <laughs> like it is a business that is you know, building technology and serving customers, um, but it's increasingly being hinged on on Bitcoin, and it's just it's strange. Um, like it, it's hard for me to wrap my <laughs> wrap my mind around like a business kind of kind of being like this. But I mean, I'm I, I kind of like the forward thinking about what Bitcoin could represent, and you know how they were able to get in early on it. And you know, for me as someone who's holding Bitcoin. I like to see that they are holding Bitcoin too. I don't know what I think about them, you know, raising money to, you know, to buy more Bitcoin and basically make themselves a Bitcoin proxy of some sort. That that is that is strange to me. But um, as a whole, I'm intrigued by the experiment essentially that's going on over there. I mean, Aaron's point is is actually interesting. I mean, in, in terms of of you know why own MicroStrategy as opposed to why own Bitcoin. Uh, because it is, there is something a little odd about it. In a way, you could argue that 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 you know what MicroStrategy is doing is a little bit like, you know, what conglomerates did in the '70s when they would diversify away from their core businesses and buy, you know, uh, I can't remember Gulf Oil or whoever it was bought, you know, Montgomery Ward or something. And the argument against that from a, a, a corporate finance point of view is always like, investors can own Mont- Montgomery Ward if they want. Why? Why should you buy it with essentially with investor money? It's actually an inefficient form of diversification. Investors can diversify on their own. And I think you could argue that here. Again, I say that as someone who knows nothing about what the status of MicroStrategy's actual underlying business, but you obviously thought it was good enough to tell people to to invest in. So maybe maybe that's a way way to do it. Um, But I will say the other thing that's interesting about this from an investment point of view, setting MicroStrategy a little bit aside, although it gets into the diversification thing, is one advantage that Bitcoin has had over the last decade, beyond the fact that it was the best performing asset class of basically in the world, 
is that it was almost completely uncorrelated with most other assets. So its movements essentially had no, were complete, they, there was no correlation between them and what was happening in the stock market. I don't know if that's changed over the last you know, year or so, but so there was a diverse, it, it evolved into where there was a diversification case for owning Bitcoin, which is sort of odd and fascinating. Um, but I do think the idea of why do I want to own this stock that owns Bitcoin rather than just owning it myself, if we assume that MicroStrategy is fairly, relatively fairly valued, you know, there's people already reflecting it. I think it's actually a really interesting question. It's a really, you know, I mean, maybe it's an ease thing, right? It's easier to sell MicroStrategy than to, well, it's not easier than to sell Bitcoin. So I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting question. I think what else is interesting about this is that there really isn't a good proxy for Bitcoin unless you buy a Bitcoin. So for example, like there is no Bitcoin ETF. The SEC has um, so far not allowed that. I think that'll probably change in time. So there are a lot of people who might not want to figure out how to own Bitcoin themselves, but are interested in owning, basically owning something in their same brokerage account that can be influenced the same way that Bitcoin is. And I think MicroStrategy has been clever in the sense of positioning themselves as as a proxy and it sort of it just reminds me of you know a term i think about occasionally which is reflexivity which you know and investing it basically that just basically means that investors don't often base their decisions on reality but their perception of reality instead and you know it kind of boils down to what we think about reality especially when lots of people start piling in it actually affects reality itself and in this case we, we've seen that play out with MicroStrategy, where by turning themselves into a Bitcoin proxy, they're now able to raise 600 million more dollars. And I don't know if they're going to put all that into Bitcoin or something else. But the point of it is they've, they've allowed some reflexivity for themselves to get more flexibility to then reinvest in other ways, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's acquiring something else, or whether it's you know reinvesting in their own business and helping them level up. And I think that is what's super interesting about this. And that same reflexivity point can be um, applied to crypto at large in so many other ways. One of the things that's odd is I think MicroStrategy is down. Isn't MicroStrategy down like 25% over the last week or month or something like that? Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, it hit a high of about 1300 just a, right. a, a week or two ago. And as we speak, and again, everything's volatile <laughs> having to yeah. do with Bitcoin right now. But as we speak, the stock is right around uh, 988, just short of a thousand. So Jim, it's down, you know, 25% in the last yeah. 10 days. That's just, that's just interesting in terms of, of, in the sense that it's not mere, it's not moving completely in tandem with the price of Bitcoin, right? There is some separation there. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was insider selling in anticipation of this $600 million. I don't know. You know, you don't know. I mean, they shouldn't be doing that. That's what's happened, but, but right. it's, but it is interesting to wonder why, why there's been that disconnect. I mean, I think the other thing that will be interesting will be if Bitcoin sees, well, I mean, just say it goes back down to 30,000, like where it was three months, three weeks ago or something like that. You know, how does MicroStrategy stock react to that? I think that'll be intriguing. Because on the one hand, you think that'd be bad, but if it's going to spend 600 million, it obviously wants the price to drop, you know, temporarily at least. So. Well, let's, let's push MicroStrategy off to the side now for our conversation and just talk a little bit more. You guys alluded to this earlier to some more of the institutional buy-in that we're seeing. Now, the master of reflexivity of our time, and it's a concept that George Soros has written a lot about. So I always think of Soros, Aaron, when I think of reflexivity, but if you actually wanna talk about the embodiment of it, it's Elon Musk, uh, somebody who can persuade people that an electric car could be real. And then in so persuading, he got the dollars uh, to, to build it and then he made it real. 
And then it changed the world. It undermined an entire industry and it led to, I think, a better future and one of the greatest consumer products I've ever seen or ridden in. So that's reflexivity. That's the Velveteen Rabbit is loved into being. If you love it, it becomes real. And it's a real dynamic, especially when a company like MicroStrategy, maybe the last time I'll mention it in this podcast, is able to do a secondary offering, raising more money it couldn't have before. Or guys, how about GameStop, the prospect of another business where their stock ran up a lot because people wanted it to be real. They also wanted to run the shorts out and I think have a lot of fun. Uh, although when you're having fun in real life with real companies, it starts getting to be a more complex sort of fun. But whether we're talking about you know running up a stock like GameStop, which was real, or electric cars, which have become real, or Elon Musk saying you can buy my electric car with Bitcoin, which made Bitcoin more real for people. We're starting to see more of that institutional adoption. So I'm just curious whether you guys expect that to continue. And Jim, if it does, maybe all of a sudden this commodity, Jim, Bitcoin does start to correlate with more of the world if more of the world is adopting it. Yeah. And I mean, that, that last point is a really interesting one. And I, I think that, you know, you've actually seen institutional investors like serious people. I could, I mean, I'm could be wrong, but you know, Stan Drucker Miller has talked about crypto. Um, there are, you know, bigger sort of money managers who are now starting to think about it. JP Morgan has talked about, uh, JP Morgan Chase has talked about, you know, the potential value of adding it. Um, so I do think that you're seeing actual institutional investors saying like, this is something we want. And I assume the big case for it beyond the like, oh, we can make 60% in a month is, is the diversification thing. But the Elon Musk thing is fascinating because, well, I think there are a couple of things. One is, it was fascinating to me that he talked about you can use Bitcoin to buy a Tesla when, of course, like my whole thing is like no one's going to do it to use Bitcoin to buy a Tesla because no one wants to use it as a currency. But it still provides a kind of credibility for Bitcoin. Right. And and Musk also just let's face it, he just has this kind of weird magic touch. It's not even clear to me at this point whether it's that people think Elon Musk knows where the future is going or whatever, or it's that people think. Everyone else thinks that Elon Musk knows where the future is going. So if I buy, I'm sure it's some weird mix of the two. Um, you know, it's and it's logical, right? If you know everyone's going to run, you want to get there ahead of time. So that's it. Um, but yeah, he he has been um, well, he's been a champion of the concept, and and obviously he's also been the champion of Aaron. I don't even know how to pronounce it. How do you pronounce? Is it Dogecoin? How do you pronounce? Is it or is it dog? Is it yeah. or is it Dogecoin? Is it Doge? I think it's Dogecoin. Yeah. Yeah. So Dogecoin, essentially a cryptocurrency invented even more than Bitcoin out of almost thin air, almost like a, I felt kind of like a joke when it happened. Um, and you have, you know, lots of people going out there and buying it and driving the price up, um, mainly because Elon Musk cracked a joke about it. I mean, that's maybe a slight exaggeration, but I'm not sure it's that much of one. Um, so it's, it is, it's a fascinating investing phenomenon, but it's also a fascinating kind of cultural phenomenon, a fascinating phenomenon of about reflexivity and about kind of collective behavior. Um, and I think the GameStop thing was as well. And I, I can even talk about that in a minute, but I don't, I don't know. I'd be interested in hearing Aaron's thoughts on Musk. Yeah, I mean, I think if you zoom out a bit more, like Bitcoin, like it really is all about, um, its legitimacy is all about people believing it into existence, like over a span of decades. And so it started out, you know, a decade ago, like literally on like a like a discussion board in the corner of the internet um, where like first it had to win over that crowd and help, you know, believe some value into existence with that crowd. And then, you know, it slowly emerged into, you know, finding like-minded people who kind of believed in the ethos of what this cypherpunk community was trying 
to accomplish. And then slowly, you know, that larger group believed more value into what Bitcoin was doing. And of course, along this whole way, what I was talking about earlier, like we still saw the boom and bust like over this long period of time, you know, slowly that group becomes larger. Then, you know, you start to see they went over the first institutions and now you're starting to see like the first funds or the first, you know, money management shops or first even like crypto oriented funds, you know, emerge that are trying to bring some legitimacy to investing in Bitcoin or, you know, and, you know, having it rep like be some part of a portfolio as a whole. And then now we're at this new phase where we're starting to see, all right, more and more institutions are starting to believe in this thing. Now we're at the beginning of companies trying to jump on board. And I do think in the same way that you have cash and cash equivalents, more people might start to put, you know, Bitcoin as a small part of, you know, that equivalent part of their balance sheet. Um, and we're still very early in that happening. And then after that, I think there still are, you know, if this were a, a video game and Bitcoin were trying to level up. I think there are still probably, you know, bigger bosses to overcome in terms of how do you now win over governments? Like, who are you going to get on your side? How do you win over the masses? And I still think, you know, I think it's right to think of Bitcoin more akin to digital gold, but because it is programmable money and there still are lots of communities um, and teams who are trying to build things on top of it, I do think that there probably is some optionality here to become slightly more than digital gold over time. Um, I think that's TBD, but just that that general trajectory of Bitcoin trying to level up and beat these beat these bosses and win over new crowds, I think that is what happens. And we're still right in the middle of it because there's a long way left to go. You know, what would be crazy is if Bitcoin actually just went sideways for an entire year. It became completely dull to look at and everybody, it was dead money. And you know what? It would all of a sudden ensconce itself more into our culture and into institutions because of its stability. Agree? I agree. And I guess I would add one more thing, which I, I think you've talked about, you know, a couple of times before in other episodes, David, just the idea of anti-fragility, um, how there are some investments, some assets, some companies um, that, you know, a lot, most probably, you know, they suffer from chaos and volatility, um, but others, you know, at their core can benefit from volatility and chaos. And I think that has what, that, that is what has happened with the Bitcoin community at large. And so you can see, you know, these, these peaks and troughs and really in those trough moments when um, you're really left with just the builders and just the people who believe that a lot of times is when you see um, the strength in the community come out where the people who still believe really double down on on building what they think is going to make a difference. And so far, you know, it's paid off in bigger and bigger ways. So I, I still expect that to happen. But I do think Bitcoin is more anti-fragile than perhaps most people expect. I mean, it's interesting because I'm a complete Bitcoin skeptic, right? Mainly because I'm, I think psychologically I'm risk averse and my training in mainly with you guys at The Fool is really in fundamental investing and, you know, the value of a company is the present value of its future free cash flows and all this stuff. And, and so the lack of an intrinsic value in the case of Bitcoin unnerves me because it does feel like at any moment people could just be like, wait, what are we spending on? Why am I willing to pay $50,000 for this thing? But the interesting thing is um, that obviously you can say the exact same thing about gold. And I feel the same way about gold. So it's no difference. And it really, it, it's, I mean, gold obviously has some industrial uses and et cetera. Um, and it has a longer track record. But ultimately the decision 
of people to be willing to accept gold in exchange for anything or to be willing to spend money to acquire gold and hold it is very akin to the, to the Bitcoin thing. And so in principle, I don't think there's any obvious reason why um, uh, why the same logic that is applied with gold, that is to say it can be a store of value over time, uh, can't work in the case of can't work in the case of Bitcoin. And, and I do think that um, the the fact that the supply is limited, so you know there's not going to be any more of it, that helps it in terms of as a selling point, that helps it in terms of being constructed as a store of value. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see. I mean, the the, the fact that you said sideways is interesting to me because I, I am intrigued by what happens if it goes sideways for a year. Like what happens? I mean, does it just become a thing you're like, okay, great. I mean, in a way that would seem to be better, like in terms of solidifying it. Um, but on the other hand, you know, maybe Aaron's right that the volatility is part of what makes it um, anti-fragile. So I, I, it's a, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it will turn sideways at some point. I just think there's a ways to go. And I mean, I, I guess I would, I would be the bull here. Like I, I'm happy that I own Bitcoin. I don't have, I'll probably buy more before I sell any. Um, you know, if you kind of compare the market cap of Bitcoin to gold, I think Bitcoin is something around 900 billion now, which is an amazing achievement. Um, and gold, I think, is north of seven trillion. Last I looked, it might even be larger than that. Um, so Bitcoin has come a long way, but there still is multi-bagger potential if you think that in an increasingly internet-driven society, um, that store of value, that Bitcoin, you know, just has better characteristics than gold at carrying forward what a store of value can be inside a digital. Um, world. And so I think that still is interesting. Thank you. And, you know, let's, guys, let's widen the focus a little bit more. Now let's get away from just micro strategy or just Bitcoin. And let's think about the world. So got a lot of good listener questions coming in on this topic. This one's from Pablo Godial. Pablo writing in from Spain says, I love your podcast. Listen to you every week. Thank you very much, Pablo. Pablo says in this world where institutions, states, and central banks have so much power, is it really possible for Bitcoin to unseat fiat currencies and official digital currencies that countries are themselves already developing in some cases? Thoughts? I mean, my answer would be no. Um, that's, but but I don't think, in a way, that's kind of the point of, of the, the marker piece. And, and I think of even of our conversation right now is that, although I think Aaron's right, that there is some optionality built into it, um, that it does say it could evolve in other directions. Um, and I actually think there are other cryptocurrencies that potentially could become more commonly used just because of the way they're designed. Having said that, I think the idea that it's going to unseat the dollar or replace the, the, the yen, you know, which was something people sort of tossed around as an idea. I, I don't know. To me, that doesn't seem like a realistic. I say it doesn't seem like a realistic goal. It doesn't even feel like it's integral to the Bitcoin mission anymore. It doesn't feel like that's a central part of what the Bitcoin mission is about. I mean, the idea of having a store of value that is independent of, of central bank issued currencies is, but the idea that you're going to replace the dollar, I don't know, to me, it no longer feels like a big part of the discourse. Yeah, I tend to agree. I don't think Bitcoin is going to replace, um, you know, a government's currency anytime soon. Um, and I wouldn't think that another cryptocurrency would do the same either. I think I um, it's largely different use cases. That said, I do think Bitcoin is the tip of the spear. Um, in some ways for opening up new possibilities. And so um, you know, maybe shifting the conversation a little bit to Ethereum, we don't have to talk too much about this, 
Um, Ethereum being the number two cryptocurrency, it was built because you know the the founders thought that Bitcoin was too inflexible and what it was uh, and what um, people were able to build on top of it. Um, and there there has been this whole movement of it's called DeFi, which is decentralized finance, where people are attempting to build um, essentially financial infrastructure on the internet that is separate from the financial infrastructure of big banks that you know governments are associated with. And I think this is still very small and still mostly unproven. Um, but I think that there are interesting things going on. And so I don't again, I don't necessarily think that you know anything going on here will replace the dollar, for example. But I do think that this whole digital world that's opening up is going to increasingly complement what is going on with how we think about currency today and how we use it. But I, I think, I think again, we're just at the tip of the spear moment. So there still is a lot left to be built and proven out. The, the other thing I would say is, is, you know, I think one thing that's important to recognize is, is how much better uh, the kind of financial system is for consumers today than it was even a decade ago, how much easier it is to transfer money at low cost. I mean, and I have no idea if crypto played any role in kind of pushing banks to do that stuff more more quickly than they otherwise would have. But, you know, if you think even in about 2010, how, how what a pain it was to try to send, a, you know, a money transfer or transfer money between accounts or whatever it is, it's so much easier, so much cheaper now. And, and so in that sense, you've actually seen sort of the traditional banks take on some of the characteristics of kind of a more it's not exactly decentralized, but certainly a digital finance world. Um, and I think obviously that's made it, you know, easier to, to see why the dollar might still be around because it's, 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 it's so much easier to do transactions in it than it used to be. Um, but, you know, we sort of, like most consumers, we take things for granted as soon as we get them, but I'm still amazed at like, you know, using Zelle, it's like, wait, I can send money and it gets there and it costs me nothing. What? Like that wasn't true, you know, even 10 years ago. So, um, but I think the different use case idea is exactly right for, for how people are going to use um, cryptocurrencies going forward. But yeah, replacing the dollar, I, I just don't see it. I was having fun online last night with friends playing a board game over the internet. And one of my friends pointed me to a new site. I, I, I should have researched this more, but we're having a spontaneous fun conversation. So here I am. It, it, it's, it's something like basketball cards. Like you remember baseball cards? I know you remember baseball cards. So oh, you're talking th about it, yeah. this one is is digital basketball cards, yes. uh, and it's not just uh, you know a picture of an athlete like LeBron. It's actually a clip. It's like a video clip of an amazing dunk by LeBron, and uh, these are being created instantaneously and then purchased by people, including my friend, uh, who then hope to sell them to somebody else at a higher value as a new currency is created. Now, on the one hand, it looks a little silly. You're like, well, even basketball cards aren't that big a business today after decades. So why is this all of a sudden going to be big? But at the same time, I've seen other things pop up in my lifetime. I will say as a Magic the Gathering card player of some vintage, I was buying cards to play with 30 years ago. And now they're actually worth a fair amount in the real world. And this is getting to what is worth something in the real world. That's the topic that's what I wanted to spend a few minutes on. So, you know, I can play my magic cards or I can sell them to somebody else. They're playing in real world tournaments with sizable money purses internationally, right? So I can see the utility of that. Um, 
I can see the utility of buying shares in a company. You're a part owner of that company. All of its assets, you own a small slice of. That's what we do as investors. Um, Jim Sirwicki, you and I talked offline beforehand about GameStop and just the phenomenon of GameStop. And, and you were tying it in a little bit to Bitcoin. And I, I want you to speak to that in just a sec. But you know, whether we're talking about speculative shares like GameStop or I would say um, more solid shares like my, my holding an Apple, these are also stores of value where we're all agreeing they're worth something. Some things have utility. Some things don't have any utility at all. And Bitcoin, I think the big volatility is based on whether this actually has real world utility or not. And that feels like the speculation to me. So magic cards, gold, Bitcoin, shares of stock, anything you or I want to put mutual value in and trade with each other, I guess can reflexively have value. I mean, can I, so the basketball card thing is fascinating. I, I actually think the, the right analogy for the basketball card thing is probably art. So I think it's actually similar to works of art, that the value that those cards get, and in this way, they're different from the magic gathering, the, the magic cards or baseball cards traditionally, is I could be wrong, but I think there's only one card per highlight. So if you own the highlight, you own that highlight. Now, what's weird about it is it's not like you own the rights to reproduce, you're the, you have sole rights to reproduce that highlight. Other people can still go on YouTube or the NBA can, can continue to, to show that highlight or whatever. So it's not like you have exclusive rights, which is actually a little different from say a painting or something like that. But I think it's similar to art, right? You want it because it's the only example of it in existence and other people will therefore perhaps value it and blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of cool, I guess. Um, I have, I have a friend who, I have a friend who's bought one, I think, looking to trade it. Um, who's also somebody who's done a lot of Bitcoin trading as well. But, um, uh, but it is sort of interesting because you can also see, even if you think about it in terms of art, you can think like, well, there would be certain highlights you might be willing to pay more for, like Vince Carter dunking over, what's his name? The French guy, like, you know, like you, I don't think the NBA has rights to that because that was an Olympics game, but it's the same idea. Like you would want to be, you'd be, or LeBron's block in, you know, in, in, uh, in the, in the finals. Um, but I do think it's, it's, it's like art and art clearly is a situation where, value is constituted because we collectively decide it's worth something. And that in turn depends in part on whether you think you'll be able to resell it, but it is. I think the GameStop thing was interesting because it was in a sense, uh, some element of it was built on that idea that they could, they, they could elevate the stock by an act of collective will, right? The people at the subreddit Wall Street bets, you know, they got together, they said, we can make this thing go up. Now, they were quite strategic. It wasn't just a pure act of will because they also said, if we do this, shorts will have to cover, uh, the option sellers will have to buy shares because we've bought all these options and that will drive the price up. So there was, a, there was actually a quite clever strategic play there. But I think the problem for GameStop, um, it, and basically we saw it happen, and I think this problem was actually weirder, weirdly harder for them to solve than for Bitcoin, was that when it got to a certain point, it wasn't clear what was going to keep it elevated. So once it got to 400, the question was, what reason is there for me to hold this stock and not cash out? Because it was very hard to see. There was no use. There was no case. There wasn't even a store value case, really, to think like it's going to keep going up or it will hold its value over time. Because the core problem for GameStop was you had an underlying business and you knew what that underlying business was 
relatively speaking, worth. And I have to think that acted as a kind of gravity pull, ultimately bringing things down to earth. I mean, if you think about, David, your model of investing or any you know, fundamental investor on some level, the idea is eventually the market will realize to some degree the real value of this company, that the, real, the fundamental value of the company will eventually be reflected in stock price. And that's how you get rich is by doing, buying it before the market is realizing it and then the market catches up. Um, in GameStop's case, I just think at some point it was like, we did this, Woo, it was a great magic trick. Okay, now what? And the, the value was always gonna be bringing it down rather than, than up. And the fascinating comparison then, Jim, and to extend it back to Bitcoin is GameStop, we can all kind of see the underlying business apart from the speculation in the shares. MicroStrategy, in a sense, we can look at the underlying business separate, but still tied to its balance sheet converted into Bitcoin. But Bitcoin itself, it remains very murky what its additional value that we can see beyond itself. Aaron, thoughts on that? I think that um, even if it has failed as a currency, it sort of doesn't really matter. It doesn't necessarily need to have lots of utility in order to hold lots of value. That's in some ways, that's sort of the point. I actually do think it will have more utility in time as more people build on top of it. And even just to, to backtrack a moment and just kind of hit on, I think you were talking about NBA Top Shot was the-, the That's it. Thank yeah, you, Aaron. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, the card, the card collection, uh, you know, digital thing that's going on. Um, it, it's also made by Dapper Labs, the same company that made cryptocurrency or crypto kitties back in the day. So it's sort of a, it's a comeback for them. And they're, they're actually working on some pretty interesting things, but, but I guess to kind of tie some of this together, we haven't even really mentioned the word blockchain yet, but essentially all, all that allows you to do is to build scarcity in a digital environment and be able to, to, to hold accountability to who owns what. Um, and in that sense, it just enables digital collectibles. And those collectibles can do different things or they can just be themselves. And Bitcoin, in that sense, is the ultimate digital collectible. But a lot of those other things that we mentioned, like NBA Top Shot or digital art, or I would even say, like, I, I kind of call this the avatar economy. Like, what if, what if your card games that you were playing, you could actually own the cards and then be able to trade them and sell them as you see fit? I think that there's this giant wave um, that that is going on right now, where it's just, what does a digital collectible mean? Now that we have new technology that can add scarcity to what people um, are allowed to truly own and not you know through a company like Activision Blizzard, but truly own themselves, how does that change the nature of digital art, of video games online, of all of these different industries? And I think right now, a lot of that is being built on platforms like Ethereum. And some people are building their own token systems and, and such too. Um, and I don't think Bitcoin has a huge role to play in what people are building on top of that for this. But I think it could in the future as teams are building um, new technologies on top of Bitcoin. And you know, one of those that I would just call out is it's called the Lightning Network. That's probably like the most notable example of what's being built on top of Bitcoin. And essentially that just allows you to set up a channel between two parties and allow them to transact back and forth um, really easily. And so it happens quickly and low cost. And then it's really just the beginning and end of that channel that is marked on the actual blockchain itself as a transaction. So there are really smart people out there who are finding ways to build efficiency and cost effectiveness 
into what is going on Bitcoin itself. And if I kind of look at that and pair it with a lot of what's going on with, I guess, the avatar economy and just these digital goods that people want, some of it does stuff, some of it just is what it is. Um, but really over time, seeing those two worlds potentially unite is kind of what strikes me as like another trillion plus <laughs> dollar opportunity where Bitcoin might help unlock some value. Either way, that value will be unlocked, whether it's Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency. Um, but whether Bitcoin has a role to play in that is TBD. But I actually, I think I would bet on it over a long period of time. The one thing that's interesting to me is the idea that actually Bitcoin's relative lack of utility at the moment, let's say, or the fact that, let's put it differently, the fact that it's not obvious what Bitcoin's intrinsic value is actually in some ways makes it easier to kind of, to use Aaron's phrase, for it to be believed into existence. Because it doesn't have that kind of thing pulling it down, which GameStop's, you know, $200 million a quarter of losses were. It doesn't have that. So it actually, in some ways, makes it easier for people to say, look, this is what we have chosen to invest our money in. And to go back to, um, to the gold analogy, gold has certain utilities, but that is not why gold became as valuable as it became. It did not become as valuable as it did because of its industrial uses. Um, it was, in a sense, a kind of collective act of maybe because it's beautiful or whatever it was initially. So I actually think there is a, a paradox that the, 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 the relative lack of utility may be partly what's making it such a good store of value. Mm, such a provocative point, Jim. Thank you for that. Actually, before we go to final statements, which we're about to go to, I, I would be so remiss if I have the wisdom of crowds author on and I don't ask him if he sees any wisdom in this particular crowd right now. Uh, <laughs> well, the Bitcoin say, crowd. it makes me incredibly nervous um, to see Bitcoin trading um, this high. On the other hand, I actually think in some sense, it really doesn't fit that well into a lot of the models in the wisdom of crowds or even the madness of crowds. So I was always interested in, what I'm really interested in is how do groups make good or bad decisions collectively, not by necessarily talking to each other, but the way they do in the stock market or the like. I do feel like Bitcoin, the core element of it is a little bit closer to a kind of decision to, in a sense, elevate this thing into being rather than a, a kind of classic judgment in the same way that you're going to decide about the value of Amazon stock or something like that. So, you know, I, the, the part of the madness of crowds that I think you do see in Bitcoin is just the bubble, bubbliness that sends it up to 50 when everyone decides that they need to, to do it and then it drops back down. But, you know, what can I say? I mean, I've been wrong about Bitcoin. Well, maybe that's my statement. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, statement. good. Well, thank you for pushing us into final statements. And I'll say final statements for now because I know this topic is going to come back. And I predict this is not my final statement. I predict we will not wait another three years before broaching this one again on Rule Breaker Investing. Okay. So final statements. And I'm going to go first because I, I have kind of a lame one, but it is my final statement. So I'm sticking with it. So I have never bought Bitcoin. I have not bought any cryptocurrencies. I didn't um, personally speculate in most of these speculative stocks that people have been running up, these kinds of things. It's just not how I am. I think everybody knows that about me. So if you see something of me in yourself, be comfortable with that. Um, we're doing well. We're doing well investing in common stocks. Some of those common stocks even have Bitcoin built into them, whether it's very obvious like MicroStrategy or maybe a little bit more subtle like perhaps Tesla. So 
if this boom continues and if it's all real, I don't even think you have to own it directly and outright. Because if it really is that big and that systemic, then it underlies the creation of value across numerous contexts. So my final statement, guys, is for anybody who might have a fear of missing out or be bewildered by all this, I say, don't fear it. You're fine being bewildered. You can do really well in this world without feeling like you need to be right or wrong right now about Bitcoin. All right, that's it from a fool. Let me turn to another fool. Aaron Bush, you're up next. Final statement, sir. I don't know what's going to happen to Bitcoin next, but I do think, and I'll say this because this is the Rule Breakers podcast, I do think Bitcoin is the quintessential rule breaker. If you look at the six signs of a rule breaker, and I'll just run through them really quickly, um, and feel free to correct me if I'm saying these. You go, Aaron, you go. Um, But number one, top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry. That is Bitcoin. It is the top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry. Number two, sustainable advantage gained through business momentum, patent protection, visionary leadership, or inept competitors. Obviously, it's not a business, so you have to think a little bit differently about this. But Bitcoin's network effect advantage um, and brand advantage is really, really strong. And I think gives them a sustainable advantage at at least being that store of value. Number three, strong past price appreciation. We've seen that for Check. a decade now. <laughs> um, uh, number four, good management and smart backing. Again, um, you know, Bitcoin doesn't have management. Instead, its founder, who was pseudonymous, um, actually has been silent and left the project, which for a decentralized you know, system and entity actually is probably the best thing that could have happened for it. Um, so I would actually give that a check, even though it's counterintuitive. Um, number five, strong consumer appeal. Again, I do think we are starting to see some type of consumer appeal with people liking what Bitcoin stands for and sort of has been become as a brand. Um, And then number six, grossly overvalued, according to the financial media. I think that is also a big check. Um, And, you know, every time I hear, you know, people write about it or, you know, you know, talk about it on CNBC or something and, and start talking about, you know, Bitcoin's energy or Bitcoin's, you know, bad as a currency or just all of these things, I, it sort of hits me that they're just not thinking about it exactly the right way and therefore think it's overvalued um, when maybe it shouldn't be. So, you know, I personally, although you got to make some little tweaks because Bitcoin, you know, is a cryptocurrency, it's not a business. I would actually put a check mark besides, uh, besides every sign of a rule breaker. Wow. And I think it, it is a quintessential rule breaker. You're opening up some eyes right there, Ambush. Thank you. And Jim Sirwicky, my good friend, you got the last words, final statement for this crypto podcast. I, I think my final statement is that you can understand something and, and be right about it in some ways and still be completely wrong. And that was really been my experience about Bitcoin. You know, I've been do, writing about it for nine years, just off and on. But and and I think I I would go back to 2011 and say, yeah, that was that was accurate, but it was completely wrong about Bitcoin as an investment. And I think that two things, one is don't ever listen to me about what's going to happen to Bitcoin. (laughs) In fact, you might want to do the opposite of what I suggest. Um, But um, the other thing I would say is, you know, just don't chase. You just have to be willing to kind of accept where you are and, and, you know, you're going to make mistakes as an investor. um, And what you don't want to do is, is end up chasing just because it feels like everyone else is doing that.
And that's where we left it. Again, thank you to Jim Sirwicky and to Aaron Bush. I really love both of their final statements. And my hope for this podcast, I think, was fulfilled. It was to get you and me, selfishly me too, to get us to think smarter about the world. In this case, the world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, the world that we're living into as we watch the volatility of a very disruptive potential rule breaker in the form of Bitcoin. So the past at this point is but prologue. Even this present is prologue. Let's see what happens going forward. Speaking of going forward, next week is your Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. Yep, it's the final Wednesday of, in this case, February 2021. If you found yourself interested, provoked, or inspired by anything that you heard, not just in this week's podcast, but by my Blast from the Past Volume 5 last week, or the touch-off to this month, horse of a different color. That would be the joy I had having my friend Reiner Knizia, the famous German board game designer, join us in the first week of this month. Well, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is rbi at fool.com. We read every note sent to us because many notes are sent to us. We can't share them all, but I always try to give you the best. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week. Full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.